wellnessmama.com. Welcome to episode seven of the Wellness Mama podcast, where I provide simple answers for healthier families. This episode's interesting facts are that people under stress who don't handle the stress of financial issues are twice as likely to develop gum disease than those who don't. Additionally, it's a myth that stress turns hair gray, but it can cause hair loss. Telogen effluvium, or hair loss, can start up to three months after a stressful event. Um, and I've actually had personal experience with that, and it, I made that connection. Um, but there's hope, because banging your head against a wall can burn 150 calories per an hour, and who knows, it might help deal with stress. As you might have guessed, we're going to be talking a lot about stress today. We, our guest today is Dr. Kevin Kakaro, who um, has an amazing website and podcast called Straight Shot Health. And he's a doctor who struggled with the current healthcare system, and he was frustrated because he only got to see patients once they had already gotten sick or had a problem. So he left his private practice, and he now works to help educate patients and focus on making healthy changes and preventing the problems in the first place. So welcome, Kevin. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Katie. I am extraordinarily excited to be here and, and uh, love what you're doing. Awesome. Thank you. Well, I'm going to go jump right in because I think you have such great information. To start, can you tell us about your background and how you got into your current area of expertise? Yeah, sure. So I, um, I'm i an osteopathic physician. I went to a DO school to uh, really because I was uh, interested in you know how the body related to health and, and uh, was more fo- focused holistically. And then what happened is you get into medical school and you start getting into your rotations. And I fell in love with anesthesia. And I loved that operating room environment. I loved being able to actually see the effects that certain things that we did on patients' bodies had. And kind of along that same route, I fell in, uh, into pain. And pain became very interesting to me uh, because I enjoyed the continuity I had with patients as well as trying to default solve the problems that they were having and provide them some tools. So I, I ended up getting a fellowship in pain management. And then after that was all done, I went to the military and served time there taking care of a really diverse patient population. It was a fantastic experience. Practiced with six other fellowship trained docs, learned from each other, but became quite frustrated because I thought that uh, because we had so many basically hands in the pot that the outcomes that we were having weren't as good as they could be. So when I left the military, I went into into a smaller town and really had my own practice where I thought that if I was seeing somebody and I was following up with them and then I was treating them when we were, you know, and providing the tools to treat them, that my outcomes, particularly with chronic pain, would be much better than what we were getting in the military because I was a little bit more in control. I guess you can say I'm kind of a control freak. And what I found is that the outcomes I was having were no better than what I was getting in the military. And some people would say those were okay. But for me, when I'm having people come into an office, I want people to feel better, get well, and then not have to come back to the doctor over and over again. So some people would say, well, if I'm seeing somebody every three months, that's a good thing. I would say if I'm seeing somebody every three months, that's a bad thing because they should be out there getting on with their lives and doing the things that they need to do. And they shouldn't be having to see doctors all the time. Uh, And that was quite depressing for a while. And what I discovered is I, you know, took some time to really think about what my training had been. And I started really digging into the research and literature and found that you know, when it comes to health, most of the health problems that we're treating in this day and age are related to lifestyle and behavior. And if we really want to get people healthy and help them to keep away from the medical system and take, you know, actually live full and well lives, we got to focus on changing behavior. And the current medical system we have just does not allow that. It does the best as it can, 
but it's not geared toward chronic disease. It's not geared towards changing lifestyle and behavior. Um, and, it, and to be quite honest, doctors aren't paid that way. They're not paid to actually keep people healthy because of the way that the appointments are set up and the way the insurance provides. And I, I finally just said, you know what, I, I, I can't do this. I'm not going to stick around and, and stay in this model. And so uh, I left. And uh, that's where I am today. That's wonderful. And I'm right there with you. I, a large part of my audience are women and moms. And so I, I, that's one of my big points, is especially with children, is that lifestyle is so important in those foundational years and trying to really head off some of these problems rather than just treat them when they happen. And um, I know I write a lot about stress and its impact on people physically and mentally and emotionally. And I know that you've dealt with that side of things a lot in your dealings with chronic pain. So it's pretty common knowledge that too much of a certain kind of stress is bad for us. But can you explain that physiological effect and what stress is actually doing? Sure. And and the, the key concepts with stress is that really stress is life. So we have to have some amount of stress in our lives. It stress is the, it, it basically causes a response. So you need to have um, a hunger response, and that's a type of stress, so that you go eat it. You know, you have to have, do other things, that you have to get out of bed and, and do things that you do. So if you don't have enough stress, you're not going to be able to grow. On the other side, though, is too much stress, and that's what we have too much now. And there's one big thing about stress that I think you probably have talked about, I'm just going to kind of hit again, is that when we are in a situation where the stress response, which is really what we're talking about, is initiated, we have in our body, it, it uh, releases um, you know, adrenaline, it causes our heart rate to go up, it causes our blood pressure to go up, because what it's getting us ready to do is really either, either to fight off something or to flee from something, that fight or flight response. Now, again, that's not bad. The problem is, is when that keeps going on, because when you have that that effect, when your heart is beating strongly, when your blood pressure is going up, when the blood flow in your body is actually going to big muscles, like into your legs and arms, things that you're going to need to swing a club if we were back in the caveman days, it's taking that, that uh, the blood flow and the energy from other areas, things like your stomach and your intestines, so you don't digest as well, from your reproductive organs, so that you know if you're trying to get pregnant, that you don't, it's more difficult to conceive. Um, psychologically, there's effects as well. So when you are in these stress response situations, you know, your perspective starts to narrow down. You start, your memory actually starts, gets hyper acute because your body is telling you, hey, this is something that's important. I'm going to need to remember this for the future so that if it comes up again, I'll have, uh, you know, this memory to, to remember what my response was and whether it worked or not. But that can also be bad because when you have that kind of heightened memory, it can, it, uh, can lead you to situations where you have post-traumatic stress disorder. When you, things are, are so imprinted on your brain, it causes this continual response in your body that's this overactive fight or flight. Um, I, I could talk about this for a long time. I'm not sure if, that, if you want to go a little bit farther on that or not. Yeah, that was really helpful. I think, um, I think you're so right because sometimes it's so black and white, stress is bad and not having stress is good, but I love that you made that point about stress being necessary, but having to keep it in that proper balance. And it seems like a lot, like with anything with health, it's easy to know something may be harmful to you, but the hard part is to actually make that change. So can you give us some practical tips to help us deal with stress and become more resilient and to use stress in that positive way you were talking about? So absolutely. So as I said, that when, the, when stress really kind of affects you and initiates the stress response, it it's turned on, you know, there's this on switch when you have that response. 
And there's a couple of ways that you can view how that switch gets turned on. And I like to use kind of a, a, like a light switch analogy with it. And if you've seen some of those light switches, they have a slider. So when you they're off and then you can kind of slide them up and the lights can be either dim or you can turn it up really high and the lights are very bright. And stress is very similar. So you can either turn that light switch on really, really high or you can turn it on just enough and you can turn it off. And so when we look at stress, stress is turned on by two factors. One, how we actually perceive the event. So if we see something happening and we think it is a threat, we turn that light switch on very, very high, all right? So one way that you can do to kind of minimize and just get the amount of stress that you need for that situation is be able to view it more as a challenge. If you feel like you have the tools to overcome it, that kind of switches that, that uh, stress response on uh, less and less harmful than it would otherwise. The other way to do it is actually to grow your abilities with, with uh, dealing with stress, and that comes through finding challenging opportunities, things that are just a little bit more difficult than you're used to, and um, practicing with them. So doing things that are slightly uncomfortable over time, doing new situations, learning new skills, and that grows your ability to, to deal with, uh, with other situations in the future, and your stress response actually becomes less. And then the last one is to increase times of recovery. And what those are is when you actually turn that response off. And this was well described in a book by uh, Dr. Herbert Benson, who's a physician. He's still practicing, I think, at Harvard uh, Medical School. And it's, it's a fantastic book. First written in the 70s, it's called The Relaxation Response. It's republished in the in 2006, I think, as The Relaxation Revolution. And really talks about the stress response and the off switch for the stress response, which is the relaxation response. And the relaxation response is our is actually in our bodies. It's a physiologic response that we have, and it turns off all the things that the stress response does. So it you know, makes the blood go away from the large muscle groups and back down into your intestines and your stomach area, back to the reproductive organs. It you know, drops your heart rate, decreases your blood pressure, you know, widens your viewpoint, kind of changes the way that your memory is working. And the way that you initiate that or cause that response to happen, though, is you have to do some sort of focused activity. So unlike the stress response, which is a survival mechanism, we needed that you know, over the centuries and decades and, and thousands and hundreds of thousands of years to survive, the relaxation response is something that you kind of have to consciously turn on. And you do that by finding a focused activity that is passive in nature. And what that means is that you're doing only one thing. It has to be somewhat quiet so there's no distractions around. And then you have to perform it consistently. And these are things that you can do such as meditation, which I don't necessarily like to use the term meditation because people start thinking about people banging gongs and mantras and incense burning. And really, it's just taking a time to sit quietly and focus on one thing. So the way I recommend to people to start is just focus on breathing. So if you can get up in the morning and find a quiet time where you sit in a chair and do deep breathing, where you're really breathing from your belly and you're doing that for you know starting with a couple of minutes a day and working up slowly to 10 minutes, that's going to causes relaxation response to go off. You're going to find that your day, the rest of your day is uh, calmer, that your ability to focus is a little bit better. Uh, and that is, that's the easiest way to start really, I think, into stress management. Thank you. Those are so practical. And um, it just kind of as a follow-up to that question before we move on to another topic, um, obviously, like it's something, like you mentioned, we have to work on dealing with stress. And a lot of us just think of stress as just kind of a mental mindset or a reaction to things. But um, one thing I've written a lot about is how even if we don't feel stressed, we can be having a stress response to our environment, whether it be um, just 
compounds or things that we're interacting with in the environment, or there's even research on light at different times of day and blue light at night causing a stress response that we may not realize, um, or even things like a sedentary lifestyle can create physiological stress that we don't necessarily identify as um, as mental stress. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and do those same relaxation techniques help with those kind of stress responses as well? Yeah, you know, absolutely. I think all of those, when you're not recognizing stress, that's where the, that recovery principle comes in. So it's sort of like if you were in the same environment all the time, you just kind of, it just becomes normal to you. Um, this is this is sort of a horrible analogy, but some people are living in absolutely atrocious environments. Uh, if you look in some third world nations and there's constant conflict all the time and uh, poverty and famine and, and, you know, people killing each other, that becomes your normal. And you may view that as your normal, but your body is under this constant, uh, you know, threat response. So the little base of the brain, that survival mechanism is completely kicked in. That's the, you know, the, the root of the brain, what we would call, um, you know, the brainstem, if you, if we want to start getting in, into the greater detail here, but the conscious part of it doesn't recognize it because it seems like it's normal. It's what you're in all the time. It's sort of like if you go into a room and the, and it's the same room that you're walking through every day or the same hallway that you're walking through all the time, you stop to notice the pictures on the wall. And, uh, what you need to do is take a moment where you actually, or if someone changes a picture that you actually take a chance to actually see something different. So I'm not, this is not the best way to explain it, but you kind of get what I'm getting at there. Yeah, I do. That's really helpful. And and just that reminder for people to keep an eye out for that and to be wary that other there can be other sources of stress besides just like, oh, I feel so stressed right now. So that was really helpful. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop you. Just, you just kind of kick my brain into gear. One of the things that, that, uh, that helps with this or that people kind of re- recognize when it occurs, but then they forget about um, when they get back into things. If you're, you're sort of this workaholic person and you're busy, 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 and you, you kind of feel like your days are running into each other over and over again. And what people will then do is when they go on vacation, they'll start recognizing, whoa, my body, I feel so much better. I feel so much more relaxed. And they may have not even recognized that, that tense, that feeling that they were having all the time while they were at work. But it's just when they were taking that moment to get away from it that they said, you know what? I was much more stressed than I thought about. And I, and I think that explains it a little bit better. Does, is that better? That that was helpful, and I've definitely had that experience happen, both with just everything going on in life, and I stepped back from it for a minute, and I'm like, wow, I didn't even realize how much pressure I was under or how much stress I was under, and for me, it's been a struggle because I feel like I'm more productive, and I get a lot more done <laughs> when I'm under a lot of stress. It's kind of that busyness breeds productivity type thing, and uh-huh. so I have to consciously make that effort, um, but something else I know you're really familiar with and talk a lot about is chronic pain, and that, would, like you said, was a part of where you got your start. Um, and I know that's a, a very big area of frustration for a lot of people. So can you shed some light on the root causes of chronic pain and the problems you found with the current model of care? Um, maybe give listeners an idea of how they could go about finding their own answers when it comes to chronic pain. Oh, that's a huge topic. Um, but it did definitely influence my research in, in uh, pursuit of really these stress and behavioral strategies. So Pain by itself. So really, you have to understand what the construct of pain is. And there's a lot of misconceptions out there when it comes to pain. People think that there is either physical pain or that there's psychological pain. And that sort of leads into this this kind of uh, mindset that there's real pain and there is no like unreal pain or fake pain. And the problem with that is all pain is pain. 
if you have pain, it's pain. It doesn't matter whether it's physical or emotional. And if you actually look at the definition of pain uh, from the American Pain Society or the International Association for the Study of Pain, uh, it is a subjective, excuse me, it's a sensory and emotional experience associated with actual or potential tissue damage or described in terms thereof. And that's a bunch of fancy medical talk for basically saying it's a sensory so that there's some sort of input and then it's an emotional, meaning that there's some sort of brain process going on experience. So you have something in your body that provides a nerve signal that goes to the brain and then the brain takes that nerve signal and says, this is pain. Okay. But the core area with all of that is how the brain processes that signal. And that that area, that emotional driver that kind of builds what the, that signal means is influenced by all sorts of things. It's influenced by how you were raised. It's influenced what you were like when you were a baby, like the environment that that was. Uh, that is influenced some type, bit with the foods that you're taking, the physical activity that you're doing. A, a lot of it has to do with your coping mechanisms, the way that you are dealing with um, stressful situations, which is, you know, as I said, how I got into stress, and all of that can influence how you actually perceive pain. So, pain is all in our brains, and I and I know that may be some challenging for some people to say. But if you do not have a brain, or if your brain is turned off, so like if we take you back and if uh, I was going to put you to sleep for anesthesia, you can't have pain because your brain is no longer there to process that signal. Now, when you are under anesthesia and there's a surgeon working on you, you are still sending little nerve signals. There's little nerves firing in your body that are sending this information to your brain. But because the brain is no longer awake, it cannot take that signal and cause it to be pain. So unfortunately, in our healthcare system, we focus so much on more of the biology in the body when it comes to pain, and we neglect much more of the central, this, this really critically important area in the brain and how you process that signal when it comes to pain. And for chronic pain especially, if we're not dealing effectively with that brain-based mechanism, you know, really understanding how depression and anxiety influence the perception of pain, how if you're in a stressful environment or if you have a pain that came from a stressful experience, uh, there's some central mechanisms for it, we're, we're not addressing it. And so when it comes to chronic pain, we focus on injections. So if you look at chronic pain, people, you know, people that I have, the chaining that I did, we focus on injections and epidurals and, and burning things and and uh, even so far as back surgery for a lot of these things, and we're not getting to that central, that, that brain-based phenomena. And that's why we have the outcomes that we have with pen with pain, which are frankly uh, horrendous. We're spending over $600 billion a year. They're estimating in the treatment of chronic pain. Our outcomes with chronic pain, particularly things like back pain, neck pain, headaches, have not improved in the last 20 years. Uh, there's more people on uh, narcotic medications than there have ever been in the past. And the only thing that we've done with that is sent a lot more people into drug treatment and a lot of people, frankly, to the morgue because of overdoses and things like that. So the, the model that we're doing right now when it comes to chronic pain is really almost the epitome of what we're doing with healthcare uh, because we're not dealing with a lot of these lifestyle behavior, coping mechanisms, stress reduction practices in wellness, not promoting wellness and not promoting preventive types of uh, medicine. So that's a, a long answer for a, a short question, but as I said, that could be an episode in itself right there. Yeah, I agree. And I think to people, I'm sure you've had this experience, people who are in that chronic pain situation, even though a lot of it can be, like you said, going back to the brain, it's still a very real thing for them. And they're definitely absolutely feeling pain. Um, so 
like like we've made that connection between stress and chronic pain and I think that may be a huge key to dealing with the chronic pain but are there other practical tips that you would suggest or things they could maybe work with the doctor if they're already being medicated for chronic pain to help look at those other aspects as well you know the the four areas in chronic pain that have the the greatest amount of benefit to them are the same four areas that are, are really effective for stress and effective for health and other chronic disease. And I, th- I think you use them as your reset principle. I call them the fundamental four. But they're really making sure that you uh, move every day. So despite your pain, you have to actually do some sort of movement because what happens if you don't move? So let's take a back pain example. So if you have back pain and you don't move, you get the short-term reinforcement of that behavior. So you're like, oh, my back pain is, is hurting me really bad. I don't want to move. I'm going to sit in this chair. Well, what happens in that is then you sit and you start to decondition. And once you're over the age of about 35, we start losing muscle mass so quickly. It's amazing to me how fast you get deconditioned. And my own experience is like if I haven't been exercising and I stop just for a couple of days and I go back to something, you know, I, I, I have so much more aches and pains from that because I'm just not used to it because I've been deconditioned just over those couple of days. So once you stop moving with your pain, once you do have to move again, so you have to go do something, you have to take care of your kids or you have to, to uh, you know, even go to your, your job if you haven't been moving around, you're going to hurt more because you're going to be your muscles, your ligaments are going to tighten, your muscles are going to be less uh, you're going to have a little bit more wear and tear than you should have been. You're going to lose the structures that are necessary to kind of keep you upright and moving around. Okay. The other thing is you have to make sure that you're eating the right thing. So as we said, what you eat is what you are. So if you're eating junk food, crappy food, uh, all these processed things that we have, your body isn't going to be able to heal. So while there's that two roles that we have for pain, that sensory or body-based phenomenon and a brain-based phenomenon, what you're trying to do with the food is you're trying to support how your body is healing itself. So we can minimize a little bit more of that body-based, sensory-based, that the uh, you know some people would say just the organic part of the pain. And then you have to take the time to relax and deal with stress. So you have to be in situations where you perceive it as a challenge. Again, so it's seeming, seeing your pain as something that you can overcome. Uh, recognizing that you can get better. I think that's the big one. A lot of it comes into beliefs of your health. And I think that's where I I have a lot of frustration with medical uh, model that we have is because a lot of times we don't say that. We say, well, you're not going to get better. This is just how it is. Or we tell you things that all your pain is from a bulging disc. And I got to tell you, bulging discs are found in people without any pain. But now, since you believe it's coming from that disc, people start thinking that there's something wrong. And so these beliefs start manifesting and worsening your pain because you think that it's permanent. Um, and then there's things like sleep that are restorative to you. So if you're not sleeping right, which happens a lot with chronic pain, you're not going to, that's going to increase stress for yourself. And it's also not going to allow your body to heal. Um, and then you have to avoid the things that are going to worsen you overall, the toxins that'll make it worse. And the big one is really smoking. So smoking causes a host of bad things in your body. It doesn't allow your body to heal effectively. It basically, it, you know, when you're looking at the low back itself, you know, that's one of the last areas that gets a lot of, of blood flow, and so the nutrients are less when it gets there. So if you're smoking, you're giving it poisoned, basically toxins, so it's not going to heal very well. So those are really the four things is making sure that you move, making sure that you're eating real food, making sure that you're, uh, you know, coping with stress appropriately, or viewing things as a challenge, viewing it as something that you can overcome. Um, socially on your stress as well, making sure that you have a a supportive environment around people that support you uh, towards your goal and and want you to get better. And then lastly, avoiding the things that are going to make things worse. And those are like toxins like smoking. Thank you. Yeah, I would echo all of those points. Absolutely. Um, And another thing I'd love 
to have you talk about with your own background in medicine and then now also being more on the patient side and helping educate patients. I'd love it if you could shed some light on the mindset that doctors have, because as a mom, I sometimes feel like um, it's frustrating when I'm talking to doctors because maybe they don't either hear me or they don't think that there's any value in my research because I'm not also a doctor. And um, But I also realize from knowing a lot of doctors that they are at the core usually very good people who go into medicine because they truly have a desire to help people. And a lot of times maybe they're as frustrated with some of these things as we are. So can you um, shed some light on maybe the miscommunications between patients and doctors or the mindset of a doctor um, and how to effectively be an advocate in your own care, but still respecting doctors and their desire to help as well? Okay. So um, I'm, I'm going to give you what my mindset is because I think that's a little bit more effective for me. And I don't want to put my viewpoints or... Um, experiences on any other person and and I don't want to be fair to unfair to any other doctors. I will say I have talked, I mean a lot of my friends are doctors. Um so I think that there is a universality to it, but I don't want anybody to go out and say that this is, you know, I I, you know, Dr. Kukaro came on and said that this is how doctors think. But there but I so I'm just going to provide my opinion on it. I just kind of want to put that out there to begin. So doctors are really under siege right now. And there are so many pressures that are coming, you know, so many other events that are, that are sort of overwhelming to them. Uh, it is a very, very difficult time to practice medicine. And I could tell you, almost every person that I've ever met that went to medical school, the, the reason that they went in, in fact, if you're sitting on an admission committee for a medical uh, school, which I, I've done in the past, it, it started as, you start getting numb to it because people come in because they really, really, really want to help others. And we want to help others get well. And that's the distinction that's really important to understand. We want people to get well. But once you start getting into the medical system, and I should say, once you get into medical school, it's a very stressful environment. You are absorbing huge amounts of information. I mean, in my school, we had tests basically, I think, every Mondays and Thursdays. Uh, so you would just absorb a whole m- bunch and then take a test. And then right, you know, th- right after the test, you were studying for the next one. And you start losing that focus because you're, you're, you know, you're in that stress environment. And you start not seeing what's going around you. And you're just focused on trying to get done with what you need to do. And then once you start getting out into your rotations or once you start actually getting, you, you know, have to do a residency, your internship and residency uh, to find your specialty, um, the healthcare system is set up in such a way that it doesn't really promote wellness. Uh, we have a what is called a sick care system. We are treating patients that have sickness. And that is very different than promoting wellness. And I, I like to use a, a, um, a little analogy between acute in chronic medical conditions. So acute conditions are things that are happening now. So if you break your leg or you're in a car accident or if you are having a heart attack or a stroke, that's what our medical system is very, very good at. There is probably no other medical system in the world that is good at taking some uh, care of somebody in, in, a, in an acute condition. So if you're in a car accident, we have fantastic trauma centers and we will try to put you back together. If you're having a heart attack and they rush you into the emergency room, we can open up that blood vessel and, and things like that. The, but what we've done now is we are using that model for acute care, and we're trying to shove in this whole chronic condition and chronic medical problem paradigm into it. So people who have um, 
you know, we're not fixing or we're not promoting the, the lifestyle that would keep people from having the heart attack in the first place. And when people go see their doctor, they would like to have that advice, but that kind of chronic, you know, chronic disease management, that behavioral and lifestyle change takes time. It takes an, a relationship with your physician. Uh, it takes really some strategies that I'll, I'll be frank with. We're not taught in medical school. We're not taught a lot about diet. We're not taught a lot about exercise and movement. We are not taught about how to motivate people and get them to change their behaviors. Um, that was quite enlightening when I sort of looked into that a little bit more and discovered, wow, we're just doing, we're doing it all wrong. We just barrage you with too much information and overwhelm you. But we're, we're not having those tools to really promote people getting well. And we're in a model that fixes acute conditions, broken bones. And we, and we sort of patch you up and either wait for that to happen for you or um, you go off and do your own thing. Now, <laughs> the other part about this is the payment model. So we always have to remember, too, that while doctors are going into medicine because they want to help people, a lot of the medical systems and even doctors' offices have staff that they have to take care of. They have bills they pay. They have to keep the doors open. And the, the way that insurance companies and Medicare pay for services, they really promote procedures and interventions over time. And when you have this sort of um, financial and I don't like to use the word reward, but more of a financial incentive to either do something to somebody or to see more people quicker because they don't value time. Insurance companies don't pay well for time. So if a doctor could come in and you, and you talk to you for 45 minutes, and I used, to take, I used to tell patients when I was seeing them, you know, for me to sit and talk with them for 45 minutes, was I got paid significantly less. We're talking three, four, five hundred percent less in some situations than it would be to walk in for five minutes and say, let's go do this injection in you and we'll take you, you know, into a, a different room, different area, different place in the hospital or, or center and do a quick injection that doesn't, you know, takes 15 minutes to do. But that is valued or it's paid much better than spending time and talking to somebody. Um, and doctors, a lot of doctors, I would say particularly primary care physicians, so those are the ones I have probably the greatest amount of uh, empathy for and um, a, a lot of frustration with the environment that they're dealing with because these are the doctors that are trying to spend time with patients and are told over and over again uh, through healthcare administrators or even even if they have their own private practice, you know, looking at the bills and trying to make sure that they can keep their doors open and that they can pay their staff, that they have to sh get patients through as fast as they can. There's management associations out there, many of them not run by doctors that are talking about how you can maximize your income by basically you know, making this cattle prodding, you know, driving people through these appointments in the most uh, efficient manner. And as many people understand, efficiency does not mean effective. I mean, the first thing that you want to do is be effective. And then the second thing you want to do is after you're being effective is you want to be efficient. And there is too much of a, of a focus on being efficient, meaning get people through as rapidly as possible and less on being effective. So for patients, if you are going in, and particularly if you're not seeing the doctor all the, uh, all the time, that's the other part that we have to understand is 95% of healthcare delivery is really, and I'm hoping I'm getting this right, I, I, I usually go too high on this percentage, but it's, but it's usually less than that. It's, it's about 5% or 10% of the population, I think it's closer to the 5% of the population, is using 95% of these healthcare resources. Now, what does that mean? 
It means oftentimes the doctor is seeing someone that is coming in that hasn't been taking any control over their health, has not been following any of the recommendations that's being done, that is not doing anything to take care of themselves. That's not always. I mean, there's there's some situations when people have been in a car accident and people are going under you know uh, uh, treatment for cancer and things like that. But a lot of these behavioral and lifestyle diseases, there's people coming back again and again and again that haven't listened to the recommendations in the first part. And because you have this environment where the doctors now, they can't spend time with patients, they have this financial overhead or these, or these other administrators telling them that they have to cycle through these patients you know, quicker, that they have to generate what's known as a, you know, an RVU, a relative value unit. And then they have a select patient population that is coming in over and over and over again uh, that isn't really interested in taking care of themselves, this is causing a lot of burnout. And if you look at actually some of the statistics when it comes to medicine, doctors have one of the highest burnout rates and one of the highest suicide rates of any profession out there. Um, so from a doctor's standpoint, it, you know, I look and I talk to doctors about this, and it's a little bit more challenging on their end. From a patient standpoint, what this means is you really have to Number one, know what it is that you're trying to get out of the appointment with your doctor. Number two, you have to sort of understand that mindset of what the doctor has. They really do want you to get well, but they have a whole bunch of other pressures that are going on. They're stressed out as all get out in the first place. Um, and I'm not saying that you need to back off on that, but you, you, you can't go in with a list of 25 questions and expecting that you're going to get them all answered. It's not going to work that way. And uh, I think I think Consumer Reports said something and they said, list out everything that was wrong that you wanted to go in for. And you're not. You need to focus when you're going into an appointment on one primary thing. And there's a structure that um, uh, I can get into later if, if we have time on it, on how to actually frame that visit and, and get the answers that what you need for that one thing. Um, but really go in with that one primary reason that you're seeing the doctor for. And if there are other issues that may come up, then if there's time, you can address it, but you really want to focus on that one thing. And because of the way that our healthcare system is set up, if you have multiple concerns, if there are other ones that you would like to talk about, you're probably going to have to make another appointment for. And um, I, I, it's not satisfying. I hate it myself. But, uh, you know, if you go in, at least you get that one thing out of it. That's better than, you know, one good answer is better than six really not very good answers. Does that, does that answer your question? Or I can clarify some things if there are other things that you'd like to talk about. Yeah, that was a good point. And I would love to hear more about your framework for a doctor's visit. I think that would be helpful because I know um, your point's well taken about we are excellent at acute care in America. And I've seen this mainly from the pregnancy and birth side of things. I had a C-section with my third that saved both mine and his lives. And I'm extremely grateful for that. And I think they have absolutely a place. But at the same time, I think regular pregnancy sometimes can be managed <laughs> like a disease when it's not. And I've had to be my own patient advocate a lot and um, have switched doctors almost with every pregnancy because of that. So I'd love to hear uh, maybe some suggestions for the best way to approach a doctor so that maybe he doesn't feel like I'm trying to step on his toes, but at the same time, I can be an advocate for my, my own, what I'm trying to accomplish. Okay. So what I would, you know, the, the one thing you don't want to go into is with a huge sheaf of papers. All right. And people can be very, very educated on their disease process. Uh, but that also has a tendency to raise some red flags for doctors. And, and um, again, there's a perspective issue on it, but there's people coming in who have really, I mean, people will come in with, with a stubbed toe and will have 17 different pages and demanding MRIs for their stubbed toe. 
uh, in, as I said, those are the ones that are really using a lot of healthcare resources for it. So what you want to go in is you want to have basically one sheet of paper. And there's seven questions that you really want to know, or at least that what you want to have an answers for. And what you want to know is what is the, the key problem that you're having? You know, it, what, is it, what is it the pain? What is the, the question that you have? How long have you been having it for? Where is it located in your body? You know, what uh, does it radiate or does it move from that area or move around in your body? What makes it worse? What makes it better? What else have you found with it? Do you have fevers? Do you have chills? Do you have a rash? Uh, have you noticed change in, you know, you're going to the bathroom different or, um, you, you know, you have blurred vision or something? Uh, and then lastly, what you really want to know is if, if um, you've had it before, what worked for you in the past? And I, uh, I'm doing this off the top of my head, so I'm, I don't usually, I don't know if I hit all seven there exactly, uh, but I did a whole episode of that um, at Straight Shot Health uh, that, you know, if people want to check it out there, I think it was episode number one, um, it talks about the seven questions that you need to know. Um, got a little sidetracked there. Is there. Did I hit you everything with your question on that? Yes, that was really helpful. That's I've never heard that, but that's very good advice to have those questions answered for yourself before you go in. That's really helpful. Um, and I hate that we're already coming toward the end of our time, but I'd love to finish with three questions that I ask every guest. And the first one is, what health or even other advice do you wish someone had given you years ago or at the beginning of your career that you would like to share? Oh, I love that question. I love that question because this is something, you know, if I could have anything from any of your listeners go out and, and read, and some of you uh, may already know this, but it took me 39 years before I read this book. There's a book by um, Carol Dweck, and she's a psychologist at Stanford, and it's called Mindset. Uh, the title of it, Mindset, the Psychology of Success. And what it really talks about is, is two types of mindset, a fixed mindset and a growth mindset. And there are many of us, and I would include, there's probably a lot of physicians, it was definitely me, that have this idea of a fixed mindset. And what that fixed mindset says is that we have some innate ability, that the way that we uh, were born or, the, or, you know, our parents were sort of predetermines how we are in our lives, and you're either good at something or not. So you're, you're, you're good at sports or you're, you're good at English. And that's not really true, because what the research has really proven is this thing called the growth mindset. And this growth mindset is focusing on getting better. So every situation that you go into, every challenge that you have, it's not a, a, a question of whether it's right or wrong or you get it or you did it, you got 100% or an A. It's really, are you, in, are you improving? Are you getting better over time? Now, the little twist of this, the most important concept that, that, I, that I got out of Dr. Dweck's book was the concept of failing. And that, when you have that growth mindset, when you have a challenge or if something doesn't go the, the, go the way that you wish it did, or say you have a health condition that may not be something that you asked for or occurred, when something bad happens, it tells you things that are not working for you. It tells you things that maybe you need to change, but it tells you that there's a possibility that you can get better because there is not, you know, again, there's not this innateness to anything anymore. So number, without a doubt, that, that I think is, is the, the most important book I have ever read in my life. Awesome. That was, that's a great suggestion. And I'd also love to know uh, what is one practical and actionable step that listeners could take right now to improve some aspect of their lives? Well, I'd go out and get Carol Dweck's book if there was anything else. <laughs> um, I think the, the big part for me and what I love about your show and what I love about your, your website 
is that people actually believe and, and understand that they can take control of their health. So we're in a day and age now when there is a huge amount of information, a little bit too much in some ways, but there's answers. And if you are frustrated with something, you can actually find answers to some of the questions that you may have. You may start going down different avenues. You have tools now that you didn't that we didn't have 10, even 10 years ago to allow you to become more educated in whatever your 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 problems may be. And as you become more educated, it challenges the, the other people in your life. So if you for particularly if you're looking at healthcare, again you don't want to go in with a sheaf of of 25 different papers, but you want to go in with a perspective, you know, being nice to your physician and recognizing their education, but say, you know, I've looked into this myself, and this is what, you know, choosingwisely.org, which we didn't get a chance to talk about right now, recommends people do or, or not do in this particular situation. This is what, um, uh, you know, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology says when it comes to this, you know, disease process or, or this stage in pregnancy, which is, which is where I, I think that you've told me I'm in right now. So this, this provides you a sense of control, and it really empowers you much more. Now, you have to be able to actually use it, and I think that's the, the important thing is, is we are in a stage now where there's all this information. Use that information effectively to start finding answers for, for your health concerns and taking a more active role in your own health management. Excellent. Thank you. And um, obviously, besides your own awesome website and your podcast, what would be some other health resources you point users in? You mentioned a great book already, but is there anything else that you think would be a good resource? Oh, yeah, sure. So there, there's a couple other books I, I would like to mention. Number one, when you're looking at behavior change, and remember when we're talking about most chronic diseases and a lot of the diseases that we have in the Western industrialized world, they're diseases of, of lifestyle and behavior. And the one of the better books I would say that really got me thinking differently was a book called Switch by Chip Heath and Dan Heath. This is a book that is not really related to health to begin with. I think one of the Heath brothers is an entrepreneur and the other one is a, again, an economist at Stanford. But the framework that they're using uh, to change behaviors of organizations is a framework that you can use as a, as a patient, as a person, to kind of set yourself up for success in your own behavioral change strategies. Like if you're trying to start a exercise program, if you're trying to change your diet, the framework they have is, is fantastic. I guess we don't have time to really talk about that here, unfortunately. Um, the other two, I'm going to give two specific pain resources because I, as I know, pain um, pain is a pain and it's a huge problem. And that there is so much misinformation and bad information when it comes to chronic pain. The best resources that I've found now are, are a couple of books. One, I think the relaxation revolution by Dr. Benson, when he talks about this relaxation response, is a great start for anybody, for your health in general, but particularly with chronic pain. And then there's two other ones. One's called Unlearning Pain, and that's by Dr. Howard Schubner, who is a uh, internist in Michigan. That book, uh, I will tell you, there's a, there's a workbook section on it. it. It is not easy to do, but the first four chapters alone, when he starts talking about this concepts of pain, are quite good, and I haven't found a lot of people that have been able to write it in such a way that it's a, it, it, it's understandable. And the last one, because back pain is really um, probably the largest pain concern, it is the largest pain concern in the nation and the world, and we've had some of the worst outcomes with back pain. We're doing some horrendous things with it. There's a book by a orthopedic surgeon in Washington, uh, David Hanscom. Um, it is a difficult book to read. As I said, it is, yeah, one of the problems that we have as doctors is we 
are not communicating very well, and we forget that people don't speak doctor talk, and we, you know, we've spent eight, ten years of learning doctor talk, and so we need to start translating that in a better method for, for uh, people so they can understand and use it. And unfortunately, uh, Dave's book is a little bit more difficult to read, but for back pain, if you're even considering, you know, going to a surgeon or a doctor or, or you're having chronic back pain, I would really start with that book because he. You know, he's an orthopedic spine physician. He does the surgery, so he provides a little bit more of a credibility that that uh, a lot of people don't have. So for back pain, I would say get his book, and it's called um, Back in Control, and that's by David Hanscom. So three sources right there. Switch by Chip and Dan Heath, just for behavior change. Unlearning Your Pain by Dr. Howard Schubiner. That's about pain, and particularly the first four chapters to kind of understanding pain a little bit better. And lastly, uh, Back in Control by David Hanscom. That's about back pain specifically. Awesome. I'll make sure to link to those in the show notes so that the listeners can find those. And lastly, just remind us, where can uh, listeners find you if they want to learn more about you? Sure. So my website is straightshothealth.com, and my podcast is Straight Shot Health Talk. Um, those are the, the two big areas that you can find me. Uh, I'm always interested in hearing people's um, you know questions that they have. You know, the other difficulty that we have with, with the Internet is, is uh, there's all these sorts of legal concerns and, and, and medical legal concerns. So if there's general questions, I, I would love to hear them because I'm trying to provide those answers. I can't give any personal medical advice, as I said, but um, I would love to hear some feedback because I want to know from people what it is that they have the biggest questions on. So as I said, with doctors, we have our own set of frustrations, and I can sort of imagine what other people's frustrations would be. But me imagining what a patient's frustration is is not nearly as good, nor is it nor as effective as patients telling us what the problems are. And if I hear what those problems are, then I could try to address them. I could try to provide some of the framework and tools. Uh, and really, again, I want people to get well. You know, physicians, we want people to get well. We want to stop focusing on sickness. We want to really start encouraging people to take control of their lives and, and to get healthier. And uh, anything I can do to help you, I would, I would love to do it. Thank you so much. And I'd encourage listeners to go check out. I've, I've checked out both your podcast and your site, and there are some great resources on there. Um, and thank you so much for being here and for your answers and for taking your time. You know, Katie, thank you so much. I had a, I had a great time. Um, I have a whole lot of stuff I could talk about over and over again. I'm sorry that we went a little bit long on this episode, but I love what you're doing. I, I'm very excited for your podcast. I love seeing people taking control of their health. And, you know, thank you. Thank you so much. And if you ever want me back, you just ask. I was going to say, we'll have to have you back to really elaborate more. And thank you to all of you for listening to the Wellness Mama podcast. If you would, if you haven't already, please take a second and subscribe in iTunes so that you'll see all the future episodes and you won't miss any. Um, And I would also be really appreciative if you could leave a review or a rating in iTunes so that others can find us as well. So until next time, thanks for listening and have a healthy week.